I think it's a safe bet to say that if you've come of age at any point since the 1940s, that Dr. Seuss had a pretty big impact on your childhood, at least some kind of an impact on your childhood. I've always, since I can remember, been a very big fan of Dr. Seuss, from the beginner books to his storybooks, and even now I love looking back at his political and his editorial cartoons. I kind of just think he was the greatest. But really, his work that stood out to me the most, the thing that I remember grabbing me the most when I was a kid the first time I didn't see in book form, I saw it in the animated movie, was the Butter Battle Book. If you're not familiar with the Butter Battle Book, first, it's very hard to say, especially multiple times in a row, but it's also really great, and it's kind of intense. So the story with the Butter Battle Book is that you have two groups of people, and they live divided by a wall. On one side of the wall, you have the Ukes. On the other side of the wall, you have the Zooks. They look the same, they act the same, they speak the same language. The only differences are that the Ukes wear blue clothes and the Zooks wear orange. And the primary dispute between these two groups of people is that the Ukes eat their bread with the butter side up and the Zooks eat their bread with the butter side down. And at the beginning of the story, you see a grandfather take his grandson to the wall and he talks about the differences between the two groups of people. And this grandfather decides that he is going to take up the mantle to be the one that, that patrols the wall to make sure no unnecessary zook activity happens. And so he starts patrolling the wall with a small weapon. And then on the other side, his counterpart starts patrolling the wall with a bigger weapon. And through the entire story, they go back to the research and development teams and they build bigger weapons and bigger weapons and bigger weapons until finally it comes to a head where the two of them are standing not with a big weapon, but with a very small weapon. Each of them has the same one that has the power to completely wipe out the other side. And then the book ends. It's over. You have no idea what happens, and it just ends with this moment of tension where they're standing on the side of the wall ready to destroy each other because of what seems to be a very small difference. And as always with Dr. Seuss, the moral of the story isn't hard to find. We don't have to go through deep literary criticism to figure out what he's trying to convey. But it also sounds a little bit like satire, and it sounds a little bit like hyperbole, that somebody would, these two groups of people would have such conflict over such a small difference. But is it really that out of the realm of possibility? Is it really that far off from reality? Sigmund Freud made an observation, and he called this type of behavior the narcissism of small differences. And what that means, what he saw, is that a lot of times these communities that were closely joined together by a similar boundary or barrier often were engaged in constant feuds. And those constant feuds were often based on very small differences, very small details of things that made them different from one another. Humanity seems to have a problem. It seems like we're looking for a reason to divide. And if we can't find a very obvious reason to divide, if we can't find something that's very glaring that separates me from somebody else, then we're more than happy to get out our magnifying glass and to be able to examine each other even more closely to find things that makes me me and you you and things that we could separate ourselves from each other for. We seem to be predisposed to division. That there is something in us that wants to pick apart our neighbor and find any excuse to pull away 
into seclusion. And Dr. Seuss might have written a story explaining it a little bit, or at least observing our need to pull away from each other. Freud might have had an observation about what that looks like, and he might have given it a name. But the Bible gives us a cause. Because in Genesis chapter 2, and I love that passage of Scripture because I got to, I got to read it as I was participating in Drew and Kathleen's wedding yesterday about this first picture of marriage. When God looked at the world that he created and all these things that he saw as very good and then he realized that there was something. He saw that there was something that wasn't good and that thing that wasn't good in God's perfect creation was that man was alone. And so God remedied that problem by bringing about community, by bringing about the first marriage, by bringing these people together so that they could have something that they desperately needed. But then in Genesis chapter 3, we see sin enter the picture. And what happens immediately when sin enters the picture is that first and foremost, Adam and Eve cut themselves off from God. When they hear God walking in the garden, they run and they hide and they try to get out of his presence. And so they divide themselves away from their creator. They divide themselves away from their God. And then when he confronts them, something amazing happens. Because he looks at Adam and he says, how do you, how do you know that you're naked? How have you realized this thing? What have you done? Have you eaten from the tree that I told you not to eat from? And Adam said, whoa, man. Ha. Ha. Get it? Because woman and whoa, man. And he was like, this woman that you gave me, really, it's not my fault. It's your fault first and foremost, if we're going to apply most of the blame. And then it's her fault. She must be broken. Something must be wrong with her. I need something else. Maybe you could have given me a cat or a nice puppy. But this this partnership is not working very well because she caused me to do this. And so because of that sin, all of a sudden, this perfect relationship that God ordained, that God created, and that God finished his creation with was divided. And of course, we know that when God questioned Eve, she immediately turned and looked at the the serpent that tempted her. And so you have three parties standing there before God. And because of sin, every single one of them has declared themselves a sovereign, unique entity and divided from one another. But while sin separates, we know that the gospel is the anti-curse. The gospel unravels everything that happened in Genesis chapter 3. And the gospel starts picking up and restoring not only broken individuals, but restoring a people and building a community. Over the next two weeks, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 3. And we're going to see very clearly in Paul's message that when we trust in Christ for salvation, No matter who we are or no matter what our differences may be, he brings us together and he makes us one. And we're going to look at those things that make us one. And no, the irony is not lost on me that I'm preaching part one and then part two of a sermon series about things that make us one. But it's important because in these three verses of scripture, Paul uses the word one seven times. And so clearly it's very important to Paul. And because of that, we know that these words are inspired by God. It's very important to God that we know that we are not a bunch of individuals having to do all of this on our own, but that we are one. And not only are we one because God declared it so, but we are one because we have things in common. We have common ground. We have a common unity. And we're going to look at all of those things over the next two weeks. Paul is going to show us the things that we share the things that we have in common, the things that make us one. 
And through that, we'll be able to see how as a church, not just a local church, but the church all over the world, the church universal, how we can share these things in common and how what we have in common is far stronger and far better than the things that could tear us apart. And so let's look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Paul says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. And now here's where we'll be the next two weeks. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. May God add His blessing and His favor to the reading of His Word. Thanks be to God for His Word. Father, we do thank You for Your Word as we do every single week. And God, we thank You for the church as we have especially over the last few weeks. And God, You know, at least in my heart, that there is just a natural desire to pull away and be on my own. And You also know that it's not good. And so, Father, I pray that you teach us to value the things that we have in common because those things that we have in common as the church are not just common interests, they're not just common tastes, they're not just things that we like and things that we don't like, but these things are foundational to the identity that we have as believers in Christ. And they are bigger and they are better and they are more wonderful and more uniting than any other cause, any other hobby, or any other interest. And so God, teach us about these things that make us one. And through that, Father, help us to see one another as one body with one spirit and one hope that all comes through one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. One baptism and one God, the Father of all. So we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Paul begins in verse 4 by saying that we are one body. And if you were going to drive through Loganville, we don't even have to go all the way through Loganville. If you want to leave here today and turn right out of our parking lot and drive down Main Street, which is about, we'll give it a nice third of a mile long, you can see, I believe, seven different churches. And if you were going to drive through the rest of Loganville, I don't know the exact number of how many churches are in Loganville, but it's a lot. And you'll see churches with different names and different style buildings. You can walk into those churches and each church might even look different on the inside with the way that we express our worship and how the teaching is taught and how all of the things operate. If you look at the signs, not only will they have have different names, but they'll have different describing factors. Some churches are Baptist, some churches are Methodist, some churches like ours say community church on the sign even though we're a Baptist church. And so there are all these different names and all these different words and all these different church buildings. And so when we see that picture, it can be really hard to see Paul's vision here. It can be very difficult to see the church as one. We think of Christianity as something that's divided and broken up and made of different denominations and different churches. But to be able to understand Paul's vision, because it wasn't much different in Paul's day, There might have been less churches, but Paul himself writes to several different communities of believers spread all over the region in which he lived. And so to be able to see this, how Paul sees this, we need to change our vision. We need to look differently at the church, and we need to see the church as God sees the church. 
Because there may be many churches, but there's one church. There may be many church buildings, but there's only one church body. And just like we've seen with everything Paul does, he is very intentional in the language he uses, and especially in the illustrations that he creates so that we can understand this. And so when Paul calls the church a body and says that we are all one body, I don't think there is any more basic picture of commonality than a body. In a body, you have many parts, but it's one. I have a lot of different body parts, but each of those body parts makes me who I am, and they make up the one whole solitary person. They work together. The body shares all of its members, and they have the same needs. They move in the same direction. And if any part of the body were removed, it would not only be catastrophic for the body as a whole, but also the member itself. And so the first thing that Paul says makes us one is that we are one. That we are one body put together and formed together by God. That He has declared it, that He has made us one, and that's just about as uncommon as it can possibly get. But again, it can be very hard to see. We often look for commonality in everything that we do, and the church is no different. When people are looking for a church, they often look for churches that match their interests, maybe that match their background and their tradition and their history in the churches. Sometimes they go to churches looking for people who look like them, people who are interested in the same things as them, buildings that, that help comfort them with the idea of church. We go to church just like we go to any other thing, looking to find things in common with other people. But instead of doing that, we have to learn to look at other Christians as part of our own body that the most base thing that we have in common is our trust in Christ that makes us one, and that's all that we need. And when we do, when we begin to change the way that we look at one another, not looking for the things that make us like each other, not looking for the things that draw us to each other, not looking for the things that are attractive in other Christians, but seeing one another as part of the same body and recognizing that we all have a very important and crucial role in the life of the church. When we begin to start seeing things that way, we'll start to realize that at the core, we share the same needs. At the core of it, we're all moving in the same direction. And we all need each other and belong to each other. And it would be catastrophic for each and every one of us and for the body as a whole if one of us were not there. We are one because God has mysteriously and beautifully made us one body through Christ. And on those days when commonality seems hard to find, we have to remember that we are one because God says so. And at the core of it, that's all that we need. And because of that, we have to learn to look at each other in this way so that when we see the church as one body, it will be no more strange than seeing two hands on one body. That when we see each other, we're not trying to figure out how we fit in or how we belong, but that we will see each other and it will be so natural to have all of our lives so enmeshed in the life of the church that it's just as natural as having two hands or two feet, that it just makes sense because that's the way that things are supposed to be. And so Paul tells us that we're united by this common knowledge that we are one body because God has brought us together for one purpose. Paul also says that we are of one spirit. In Ezekiel chapter 37, we find maybe one of the most famous stories in all of Scripture. 
It goes right up there with the Garden of Eden story and Daniel in the lion's den and Jonah in the whale and Noah in the ark. Ezekiel in the story of the dry bones is a story that people cling to. It makes a really good picture. It makes a really good drawing. And so in this passage, we see Ezekiel the prophet get a vision from God. And God shows him this vision of a valley that's filled with dry bones. People that used to be a mighty army that had died and decayed and withered away into nothing. And these bones were useless and dry and nothing good could come from them. But God tells Ezekiel to prophesy over the bones. And he says, say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am God. And so Ezekiel did exactly what he was told. And he prophesied to the bones and he saw in this vision something miraculous and amazing happen. When God begins to take these bones and take the bones and cover them in muscle and tissue and fiber and wraps them in skin and all of a sudden Ezekiel sees before him a mighty army that's still dead. And in verse 11 God said to Ezekiel, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. But before that, he called Ezekiel to prophesy to the wind. And what's amazing about this passage of scripture is that the word wind and the word spirit are used interchangeably there. And so he says, prophesy to the breath or prophesy to the spirit, prophesy son of man and say to the spirit, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. And Ezekiel prophesied just as God had commanded him to, and God breathed into the valley, and life came into the soldiers. And now they stood, a mighty army, ready to go and to do what God had called them to do because God had breathed his life or breathed his spirit into the bones. When God creates in his own image, we often see, and we always see, that he also breathes his spirit into that life to give it animation and to give it life. We see this in Genesis chapter 2 as well, when God takes the dust and forms it into man, but it wasn't until God breathed life into Adam that Adam was a living being. God breathed his spirit into Adam to make him alive and to make him fully in the image of God. And this is also a picture of salvation. Because we know that when we're born again into salvation, that when we're recreated into salvation, that God takes something that's dead and makes it alive. But you don't have to take my word for it. Because in Ephesians 2, Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. In Ephesians chapter 2, we see this picture of who we are before Christ. That we may look like we're alive. 
We may have all the functionality of someone who's alive, but Paul says that we are dead in our sins and trespasses because even though our body is alive, our spirit is dead within us because of the sin that we hold, as Paul says, so dear, and that we walked in that pattern day after day after day. But to save us, the same God who breathed life into Adam, the same God who breathed life into the mighty army in Ezekiel's vision, breathes life through his spirit into each and every one of us and makes us alive in Christ. And just like Ezekiel's army, there's one spirit that brings life to every single believer. The church is not only a body joined together by Christ, but we share in one spirit that not only moves in us, but it makes us alive as individuals, but also makes us alive corporately and brings us together as one so that we can move in the rhythm of the same spirit and know that we're being guided by the same God. Being part of the church, being part of the body reminds us that we belong together and that we need each other just like the body needs its members. That we should love each other like we love our own bodies. But we also see that we share in one spirit and sharing in one spirit reminds us that Christ has made us alive. A lot of times when you hear Ezekiel 37 preached, I remember hearing it sometimes in revival services and things like that. It can often be used in sermons as an illustration to try to describe the church. They'll read the passage and they'll say, now this is us, this is the American church, or this is our church, that we were once a mighty army, but now we're dead and we're dry bones and we need God to breathe fresh breath into our lives. But the reality is, maybe the church as an institution can sometimes run out of breath, but the church as a body never can. Because once God has breathed that life into us, once God has saved us by His grace, once God has made us one body through the gospel into the church, we're never going to run out of breath. We don't need God to breathe fresh life into us because His Spirit is living and reigning within us. We have the promise that the Holy Spirit will not only be with us individually, but is with the church corporately. And so we don't have to go find something new. God has given us everything that we need to move in and work for His good and His glory and to love our neighbors as ourselves. The church is alive. And God has breathed His life into this body, everything that it needs to go and to take the gospel to the world and to love our neighbors as ourselves and to make the name of God famous to all stretches of the world. I love the song that we sing by all sons and daughters. And the chorus just says, it's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise. And I love that because we're not singing it as individuals. We don't say it's your breath in my lungs, so I pour out my praise, but we sing corporately, it's your breath in our lungs. One breath, one wind from God, one spirit inside of us, saving us daily by his grace, but also giving us what we need to go out and to take this body and to put it to work. And so Paul says, not only do we have in common the fact that we've been united together by Christ as one, but we have everything we need corporately in the Spirit of God working through us as individuals, but more importantly, as one church and one body, helping us to move in the rhythms of God's grace. So we have one body and one spirit. And then Paul tells us that we also have one hope. I've already made reference to Acts chapter 1 since we've been talking about this passage because it's such an important 
moment in the life of the church. But in Acts chapter 1, we see the people gathered around God, around Jesus, and all of his disciples are asking him the questions about the kingdom. Is now the time? Is now the time that your kingdom is going to come? And Jesus gently corrects them and tells them that they're asking the wrong question. So the answer to the question that you need to be asking is that you're going to be my witnesses here and all over the world. That you have a job to do, that you have a mission to accomplish. And after he gives them this commissioning, after he gives the church this early picture of the church, the mission that we still have the calling to live out today, Jesus ascends back into heaven. And the people just look, because that's what you do when someone disappears into the sky. You look, because how do you process that? And we see some angels come to the people and they say, hey guys, that was weird, right? (laughs) But why are you looking into the sky? It says that Jesus that just ascended into heaven will one day return. And they give us this picture of the ultimate hope of what we're waiting for in Christ, that one day he'll return to make all things right and all things new. And after the angel said that to the people gathered around watching Jesus and hearing his last words, the very next chapter is Acts chapter 2, when we see Peter preach the first gospel sermon and thousands of people trust in Christ. That's when we see the power of Pentecost fall. That's when we see Acts chapter 2 in the latter half with verse 42 through 47 when the church began to start meeting together and devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and having this fellowship with one another, but also going out and working for the good of their neighbors and loving their neighbors around them and spreading the gospel everywhere that they go. And it was the hope that enabled them to do that. They were looking in the sky, confused and alarmed and in awe. But then they were reminded that he's coming back. The same Jesus that told you that he would die and raise from the dead is also the same Jesus who told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you and one day I'm going to bring it so that you can enjoy it with me for all of eternity. And the angels just give this gentle little reminder. Don't forget this isn't the end of the story. Don't forget he's coming back. Don't forget that he's going to fix everything that's broken. Don't forget that one day he's going to make your salvation complete. And that's all of the pe- that the people gathered around Jesus needed to hear to realize that now I have everything I need to go and to do the work that he's called me to do. They had a common hope that inspired their common mission. A common purpose is a powerful unifier. You may go to work every single day with people that you don't particularly care for, or maybe even that you don't particularly know very well. But because you have the same purpose and the same task and your company is trying to do the same thing, you're able to work together. But a common hope, a common hope is even more powerful of a unifier than a common purpose. It seems like the movie makers get this idea. Because anytime that you watch any kind of a movie where there's some big ending, these treasure hunt movies or prison escape movies, one of the, the tropes in these kind of movies is that you have a group of people who are gathered together who don't have anything in common. They oftentimes don't like each other. Maybe they have a backstory where they've really had some problems with each other in the past. But because there's this promise of treasure or of power or of success or of escaping from prison, then all of a sudden that hope for what's coming is enough to unite them and help them to get through really difficult circumstances. And there's no greater hope 
than the hope that we have in the gospel. The promise that not only is the salvation of Jesus good for us today, that not only when we trust in Christ for salvation do we go from being dead to alive, that not only through the power of the cross and the resurrection do we have the ability to be forgiven by the God who loves us so much that He would give His Son for us, Not only do we get some kind of clean slate or restart or any of those words that we use to describe this, but we have a hope that lasts for eternity. That our salvation is not just for today. It's not just for our life right here and right now, but we have a better hope and a better promise to come. That promise of Revelation 20 and 21 that one day Christ will return to make all things right and all things new. That one day our salvation would be complete. That one day all of the things that break our hearts would be taken away. Our tears will be dried and the pain and the agony and the sickness and the sorrow, the sin and even the death will pass away. There's no greater hope than that. And that was the hope that the apostles and the others that were gathered there around Jesus clung to as these angels uttered the words in their ears and then they realized it was time to go to work. And that led directly to Acts chapter 2 where we see something amazing happening at the end. Because not only were they devoted to the apostles' teaching, not only were they meeting together in prayer, but it says that they had all things in common. And that they were sharing with one another. If anyone had need, they were selling their possessions and giving that away so that someone else could be taken care of. So not only did that common hope remind them that they had work to do and that they had everything they needed to go out and accomplish that work, but it reminded them that they all shared in that common hope together and that their eternal promise was far greater than their earthly wealth or their earthly riches. And so they realized, if I share a common hope with you and if you share a common hope with me, then what is a little stuff between friends? And if you're in need and I have something where I can help you, then why in the world would I not be willing to sacrifice what I have to give to you because of what you have? Because everything that we have comes directly from the hope that we have in Christ who had far more than he could ever give us and offered all of it for us when we had nothing to offer back in response. The common hope that they had in Christ changed absolutely everything about not only who they were, not only what they did, but how they functioned as a community. It not only gave them the boldness to go out their work, but it reminded them that they were not alone now or for all of eternity and that they had a responsibility to care for one another in the here and now. The reality is you can usually make it work to be around somebody for a while. Trust me, I know. Sometimes I'm not the easiest person to get along with. Sometimes I tend to be a little grumpy and cranky. Sometimes I don't like everybody that's around me all the time. And so there are plenty of times where you have to fake it till you make it a little bit. And you just tell yourself, it's just one week. It's just one semester. It's just one year. It's just five hours a day. It's just eight hours a day. If I can just make it from eight o'clock in the morning to four o'clock in the afternoon, then I don't have to see this person again for another 12 hours and everything will be good and everything will be okay. We can make it work. When it comes to eternity, we better have a better plan. If someone's going to be around us for all of eternity, if we're going to be united with one another for all of eternity, our relationship with one another better be more than tolerance. We hear a lot about tolerance. I once heard a theologian say there's almost nothing worse than being tolerated. Because if you really think about it, it just means we're putting up with something. 
And the Christian faith and the Christian life and the Christian relationship inside of this body is something so much more beautiful than tolerating each other and just getting through Sunday mornings. For the early church, the hope of salvation didn't just create inside of them a passion for the work that was before them, but it created in them a compassion for one another. All the things that took place in Acts chapter 2, especially the last part of it in 42 through 47, was born out of this common hope in Christ. And what's amazing is that we share the same hope of the early church. And because we share in the same hope that brought them together and united them in unbelievable circumstances, should also do the same for us. Because we share in the same common hope of the early church, we should also share in their unities. We need to learn to see each other not simply as co-workers for the gospel, but co-heirs in Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, family members in Christ, and allow that common hope that we have to unite us in a way that is deeper than a common purpose because we are going to be with each other and loving each other for all of eternity. And if we really genuinely believe that, that has to change not only how we function in the local church here at Redeeming Grace Community Church, but that has to change how we deal with all of our brothers and sisters all around the world. That we should love them as Christ loves us. That we should give for them as Christ has given to us. And that we should use our relationships to put on display for the world the common hope that we have in Christ. And when people say, how is the church able to be what it is? We can say, listen, we are just practicing what we're going to do for all of eternity. That Christ has brought us together out of nothing, formed us together as one body, made us alive with one spirit, and we have this common hope that we are going to be together forever. And just as Christ has loved us, we are going to love one another for that entire time. We're one because God has made us one. He's made us one body by declaring it so. He's made us alive by breathing into us one spirit, His Holy Spirit. And he has united us together eternally by laying out before us one hope. And so as we answer the call that Paul gave us last week in verse 3 to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit, let's do so with these truths on our mind. Always seeing each other as one body, moving in one Spirit, and walking into one hope together.